Welcome to the New England Law Review Honor Man Podcast. I'm Volume 50's Executive Online Editor, Brandon Airy. The New England Law Review is the flagship publication of New England Law Boston, which is located in downtown Boston, Massachusetts. To learn more about our institution, visit the website at nesl.edu. And to learn more about our publication, go to newinglrev.com. On our website, you can find our most recent blog posts and most recent issue of the New England Law Review. Today, I am joined by Victor Hansen, an Associate Dean here at New England Law Boston, to discuss the New England Law Review's recent symposium about sexual violence in the U.S. military. Dean Hansen, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Happy to be here, Brandon. To start off our discussion, Dean Hansen, could you give our listeners who are not able to attend the symposium a description of what the event was about? Sure. The event focused on an issue that's come up quite recently regarding sexual assault and sexual harassment in the military. It's been an issue that has plagued the the forces for a number of years, but particularly in the last four to five years, there has been a lot of attention both within the Department of Defense, among the public, among Congress, among uh, various interest groups as to uh, the prevalence of this, this crime and these situations occurring in the military. And this symposium focused specifically on an article that Professor Rachel Van Landingham, who teaches at Southwestern in uh, Los Angeles, wrote regarding one aspect of the current military justice system relating to prosecutorial discretion, how that prosecutorial discretion should be exercised, and how it might relate to resolving problems of sexual harassment in the military. So, Dean Hansen, what is prosecutorial discretion, and why is it such a problem in civilian criminal law, and specifically in U.S. military law? Well, prosecutorial discretion, I'm not sure I would refer to it as a problem. It's really a feature of the U.S. justice system, and it rests on the notion that the prosecutor who speaks for the people is, in most cases, elected, in some cases, appointed, but it's the elected representative who's been tasked with the responsibility to prosecute crimes, um, ensure justice, and protect the public. In virtually every jurisdiction in the United States, those positions are elected, and then a number of lesser or deputy prosecutors serve along with the elected prosecutor. The system is based upon the notion that while legislatures pass laws and codify what crimes or what actions are crimes, there's a recognition that not everybody is prosecuted the same way because every case and every individual is different. So the system that we've developed in the United States is one that rests a vast amount of discretion with the prosecutor, who, when faced, let's say, with a report or an investigation into a crime, has to then decide what the appropriate mechanism for pursuing that prosecution or punishment might be. It could be as little as taking no action at all. It could be entering into guilty pleas. It could be deciding what charges to, to bring and what charges not to bring and what punishments to seek. That's all kind of balled up in prosecutorial discretion. And the reality is, in every jurisdiction, every civilian jurisdiction, rather, prosecutors exercise these decisions with very little, if any, external oversight. I mean, prosecutors are given this ability to do so. Courts, legislators uh, don't typically step in then and second-guess these decisions. So it's developed that prosecutors in the United States have an enormous amount of power in how they exercise that discretion. Within the military, it's slightly different. Uh, military has prosecutors, but prosecutors within the military are not the ones who make the decisions on who gets charged and what crimes get punished. Those decisions are actually left with the military commander. So Rachel Van Landingham's article 
really kind of explored this dynamic and this difference between how things work in the civilian system, how things work in the military system, and whether each system can learn something from the other that might better ensure justice, and particularly in the context of sexual assault crimes, might better ensure that these crimes are prosecuted appropriately. What was your own experience with the U.S. military, and do you think it has helped to shape your view on this issue? Well, certainly I was involved in the military for a number of years. I served as as a JAG officer, as an Army JAG officer, an Army lawyer for an entire military career for 20 years. So in that time, I served in various capacities, but those included different stints as a prosecutor. So I had opportunities as a prosecutor, a military prosecutor, to prosecute sexual assault crimes. Uh, Later in my career, I served as an instructor and then served as a supervising defense attorney. So I also had, uh, later in my career, the opportunity to defend and assist with the defense of soldiers who are faced with these crimes. And it certainly shaped my view of the situation and my view of the ability of the justice system, the military justice system, to address these these issues in these cases. And I think many of those who were present at the at the panel discussion, uh, Professor Van Landingham, for example, had a 20-year career in the Air Force. Professor Hillman, who was, she had a 20, I'm not sure, a 20-year career, but she had a, a fairly long career in the U.S. Air Force before becoming an attorney. So each of us came to the discussion that evening with slightly different perspective, but each of us with a lot of experience in military law, military culture, military justice, and how the military works. Well, we definitely thank all of you for your service. Thank you. What did Professor Van Landingham's paper suggest was the most appropriate way to combat the problem with sexual violence in the U.S. military? Well, I think what we have to do is is kind of step back and see what the thesis is that she was really trying to address. As I said before, this is an issue that's gotten a lot of attention within the Department of Defense and among uh, Congress members of Congress. And there have been a number of studies and a number of task forces that have looked into uh, sexual assault in the military and how it's currently dealt with and what improvements can be made. One of the suggestions that has been a reoccurring theme is that in the future, uh, military commanders should not be the ones exercising the decision on which uh, soldiers should be prosecuted for committing sexual assault crimes, that rather that discretion should be taken away from the military commander and given to a military prosecutor or some prosecutorial body that serves that function. And Professor Van Landingham, I think, starting off on that premise, explored whether that was really the right approach. And, and, And more to the point, I think she explored more so than anybody else has yet why that would be a better system when you compare with what currently goes on in the civilian system and questioning whether the amount of discretion that we currently give prosecutors in the military or in the civilian system is really a better solution. Dean Hansen, do you agree with Professor Van Lanningham's thesis, or do you think there are other ways to combat the issue of sexual violence in the military? So I think there's a lot of different ways. I, I think one of the things I would say, and I think everybody on the panel, and particularly Professor Van Lanningham, would agree that there's no one silver bullet that's going to solve all of this problem. I tend to agree with her view that certainly removing prosecutorial authority away from the military commander and putting it in the hands of a prosecutor is not likely to have much of an impact specifically on sexual assault crimes. That that in and of itself uh, would not lead to different results or in any case better results. The, The primary premise of her thesis really was that the military kind of has a unique opportunity of being able to make these decisions, having information that comes both from the prosecutor and from the military commander, a commander who's more attuned to the 
the needs and what what should be appropriate for good order and discipline within the service. And so I think her suggestion was really to think about ways of enhancing accountability and also thinking about ways to ensure that the input from both prosecutors and military commanders is fully developed in deciding how to deal with these cases. And I certainly agree that that's, to me, a more promising and more realistic approach than simply saying the military commander shouldn't be involved whatsoever and we should give all of this um, authority and decision-making power to a prosecutor. That That's the premise that I don't agree with, and I've certainly written on that issue in, in other contexts. But um, So, yeah, I think I would say that I'm in support of the issues that Professor Van Lanningham has raised. I think there's still a lot of questions that have yet to be answered, but I think she's opened up an area of discussion that has yet to have really any focus. Yeah, I think it's definitely going to be a, a more holistic approach on how to combat this problem. Exactly. Here at New England Law, you teach criminal procedure, among other things. Have you touched on this issue in your classes? So criminal procedure is is really not the course that I've used to address this issue. Pr- criminal procedure focuses more on um, constitutional issues on, under the Fourth Amendment, under the Fifth Amendment, under the Sixth Amendment. However, um, criminal law, a first-year required course here at New England and virtually every law school in the country, is an area or is an opportunity to to talk about these issues. When I have, and I've taught that course a number of times in the past, and one of the crimes that many of us uh, choose to focus on over the course of the semester when we're working with students is rape and to look at how the crime of rape has developed over time and how legislators and legislatures and how cultural changes have impacted and influenced what we deem to be criminal in when it comes to the crime of rape. So that has been an area where I've used, I've used issues like sexual assault in the military to perhaps raise students' awareness of these issues and get student discussion and thoughts together about, you know, how to address these kinds of crimes. And one of the things I've, I think I've tried to stress every time I've taught this material is that this is a very complicated area of the law. Factually, it's very complicated. Legally, it's very complicated. And I think that, again, going back to potential solutions that are out there, there's no real easy solution that, that comes to anybody's mind that's going to fix these kinds of problems, which exist not only in the military, but certainly exist in society as well. Provost Hillman and Professor Van Lanningham both touched on the motivating forces behind why soldiers fight. What do you think motivates new soldiers to enlist and current soldiers to fight? I think there are a lot of different motivating factors. When I first came in the military, it was in the post-Vietnam era, um, I would have to say that serving in the military was not seen as a very popular thing to do. I think with respect to many who serve and served then initially, it, particularly in some of the positions, it might have been an opportunity for folks to get out of, uh, I guess, in, in, improve their, their socioeconomic status. Uh, that's one way that people enlisted in the military. I think that anybody who's enlisted or joins the military then or now is also motivated to some degree, by um, a desire to serve and a desire to do something greater than themselves. I think that spirit of service and desire to serve your country and and serve greater than yourself really was something that I saw develop more after 9-11. I know after that era or after that time period, we saw enlistments increase quite significantly. And talking to people then, it was... Uh, being motivated by wanting to respond to the 9-11 attacks. 
I actually just spoke with a soldier the other day who's getting ready to go off for an 18-month deployment in Kuwait and, and likely to be Iraq down the road and was talking to her about her motivation. And, you know, she said, it's not like I really want to be away from my family, but I feel like I need to stand up and, and take on some of the responsibility for being a citizen. And, and if I have the ability to do so, why shouldn't I do so? And I think that, in my opinion, really sums up what motivates a lot of current soldiers and sailors and airmen and Marines to, uh, to enlist and serve. Do you see any action within the military or by Congress in the near future that will remedy this problem of sexual violence in the military? Well, I can say that in my 20 years as a military officer, and then certainly my time here at New England, this is an area that I've put a lot of attention to and some of my scholarly work has been around. And so I've I've kind of tracked the ebb and flow of, of congressional interest and outside interest in, in various areas areas of military justice. And the attention that other issues or areas have received doesn't seem to compare to the amount of attention that is being currently placed on this issue. So I would say that, yes, I think we're going to continue to see action involvement by both within the military and, and outside of the military, primarily through Congress. You know, I always get somewhat nervous when Congress comes in to solve the problems because sometimes they create more problems than they solve. However, uh, they play obviously a very important and significant role. I mean, it's through Article One, Section 8 of the Constitution that grants Congress, in essence, plen plenary authority to, to govern the naval and uh, armed forces. And so um, this is Congress serving its role and this is what it should be doing. You know, I think it's going to be a long-term process. I worry when I hear individual congressmen suggest that one or two pet legislative proposals will be all that we need to solve the problem. I think that's unrealistic. But yeah, I think things will get better. And I think some of the changes that have already come in the last few years have been generally and as a whole changes for the good, even though I might not agree with every specific aspect of those changes. Well, I know we all hope something gets done soon to solve this Thank uh, you. major issue. Again, thank you for joining us, Dean Hansen. Additionally, our recently published Volume 49, Book 3, is now available on our website under the Current Issue tab. Information about our forthcoming Volume 49, Book 4, is available under the Forthcoming tab as well. Also, be on the lookout for new content from New England Law Review Honor Man, coming soon with an article by Professor Paul Tyke breaking down job prospects for law school graduates in the near future. I'm Volume 50's Executive Online Editor, Brandon Airy. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for more from the New England Law Review Honor Man podcast. Thank you, Brandon.